Welcome back to Global Get Down with myself, Julian, myself, Roman, and me, Hannah. And on this episode, we'll be delving into our first segment on our voices in IR, globalization. Is it a small world after all? In this episode, we will have a interview with former WTO head Pascal Lamy and have a discussion on globalization and his interview afterwards. So Pascal Lamy served two years as Director General of the World Trade Organization from 2005 to 2013. He was also the European Commissioner for Trade from 1999 to 2004. And he is currently the President of the Paris Peace Forum. And the Paris Peace Forum is an international event on issues of global governance and multilateralism that is held annually in Paris. And now the interview with Pascal Lamy. Uh, good evening, Monsieur Lamy. Uh, thank you for meeting with us today. Um, so we are the URSA podcast. We're called Global Get Down. And the aim of the podcast is to introduce international relations affairs to the UBC audience as well as to a group of uh, non-academics who may be interested in uh, international affairs. Um, so the structure of today's uh, interview is going to be in three segments. We're going to do... Uh, one on the strengths and limitations of globalizations, one on the future of globalization, and then we're just going to wrap it up um, and with any advice you may have for uh, future uh, legislators and young leaders. Um, so just to start things off, we'd like to start with the definition of globalization. Um, Susan Strange defines it as the resultant process of human decisions taken in the social, political, and economic spheres, as well as man-made institutions. Um, how would you define it? I would define globalization as uh, one uh, historical stage of the expansion of uh, market capitalism. We've had previous waves of extension of market capitalism. Uh, the one we've been living through for the last uh, 30 years has been uh, powered mostly by technology and also by the view that uh, trade opening is a right way to go. Uh, and in a nutshell, it uh, translates into an intensification of uh, international exchange, uh, economic exchange, goods, services, uh, capital, uh, people, which connects production systems uh, with one another much more than in the past. So. Um, that in mind, um, would you say that the rise of Donald Trump and isolationist movements like Brexit um, are sort of an inadvertent caution against the grow growing power of the global liberal elite in the sense that they've managed to capitalize on this massive expansion of market capitalism? No, I've always thought and said that uh, globalization uh, has uh, a double face. Uh, it's good for some and bad for others. And the fact that on overall globalization has been a win game, i.e. if you look at what's happened on this planet for the last 30 years, it has lifted uh, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and it has created more winners and losers is an economic reality, but it may not become a political reality because the losers uh, are not convinced that they 
are the losers <laughs> because there are many winners. So an economic reality can translate into a political problem. And insofar as the winner-loser equation has not been properly addressed, notably in the Western world uh, uh, in uh, the recent decades, this has led to resentment. This has led, for, this has led to a feeling by part of the population that they've been unfairly left aside from the benefits of globalization, hence this resentment. And I think uh, I remain of the view that addressing this problem of the losers of globalization uh, is something uh, which the Western world has not been doing well, and that is now paying the consequences of that. All right. So kind of um, shifting gears a little bit, we want to ask some ideas that you have on sustainability and globalization. Um, and kind of global capitalism and our global capitalism and climate change mutually exclusive? Can we embrace processes of globalization and capitalism while also promoting sustainable practice and global environmental conservation? I mean, the question whether uh, global capitalism and environmental sustainability can uh, work together is uh, a controversial one. Uh, my own view for what is first uh, is that in theory, in theory, uh, there is a, a silver bullet solution, uh, which is uh, pricing carbon uh, at the right level. If you price carbon where it should be priced, and that's, we are told it's roughly 100 euros a ton, then global capitalism will adjust to a change in relative prices and production systems will shift to the places where it's the most economical uh, to produce while paying uh, carbon emissions 100 euros a ton. Now, this is the theory. I don't think it's going to be the reality before long, not least because there is no consensus on this planet that uh, uh, carbon emissions should be priced uh, at 100 euros a ton. So we will have to go through uh, different uh, systems. I think Personally, it still is doable, although uh, as time goes and as uh, the uh, warming of the planet goes, and this is only for the climate change part of that, there is a biodiversity, there is also an oceanic and water system, big challenge. The more we wait, the more the transition will be painful, which is why we'd better more rapidly than we do now adjust our production system to uh, the uh, to the sustainability equation. Great. And kind of um, building on your answer and kind of a lot of youth in Vancouver were quite interested in kind of the environment and kind of getting involved in these types of forums. Um, kind of with uh, the global climate strike and Greta Thunberg coming here last week, um, how do you believe youth plays a role in kind of shaping these types of conversations and um, how can youth promote uh, better practice in relation to uh, changing the climate or um, within sustainable practice? Well, as, as usual, you've got the two ways which are available uh, to young people. Huh? Uh, one is uh, uh, they have a vote 
and you vote, and second, there is the way you behave in ordinary life and the way you start adjusting your own behaviors to what you believe is the right way to preserve the environment. And I think it's, it's, it's a bit of both, but there are many areas where uh, young people can engage in politics and push in the right direction. If you look at the result of European elections uh, this year, uh, which have uh, resulted in a change in the European Parliament uh, in Brussels and Strasbourg, quite a large part of the growth of green parties is due to the participation of young voters. So this works if, if of course, they uh, register and they engage, and this differs country to country. And then there's the way you behave, in the way you use uh, transport, in the way you consume your food, in the way you treat your waste, and that's a sort of individual, I mean, commitment, which can also change a lot of things if uh, many people go it this way. Um, so, considering all of these, um, and considering the student audience that we're looking at, uh, you mentioned that uh, technology is one of the key drivers of globalization. How do you foresee technology as furthering globalization and uh, increased youth participation in rectifying the problems of our world? First, I think technology will keep crossing the cost of distance and will keep reshaping international exchange, production systems, goods, services, circulation of people and capital. This will keep moving and this will remain an engine of globalization. It won't be the same globalization, it might be a different pattern of globalization, but it still will result in interpenetration of goods and services production systems, in interpenetration of capital flows, and in mobility of people. I don't think the sort of Trump-like attempt to deglobalize will succeed, uh, because I believe globalization is efficient and painful, but I also believe deglobalization is inefficient and painful. So, now, what can uh, uh, the young people, I mean, how can they influence that? Again, they can influence through political systems, and through their own behavior, and I think uh, the, the, the growth of, of, of notably um, social media uh, creates a whole new space uh, for intervention in, uh, in collective uh, decisions and in collective life. It certainly gives a, a, a sort of echo uh, to much more people who resent the situation. It might also uh, give uh, much more say to people who want to move the situation forward. And then um, just kind of wrapping everything up, um, kind of what advice would you give to those in our local communities to engage and kind of share their voices surrounding globalization and other global trends? And we know that um, you're involved with the Paris Peace Forum, so maybe perhaps um, if you could give a little bit of advice and um, talk about a little bit about the project you're involved mm -hmm. with. Yeah, I mean, the Paris Peace Forum, which I have now the privilege to chair, uh, is an attempt uh, 
an initiative, a sort of fresh way of trying to address global problems other than by uh, classical diplomatic, treaty-based, institution-based approaches, which is the sort of Westphalian approach we've had for quite a number of uh, centuries now, and it's based on uh, more on uh, other stakeholders than sovereigns. Uh, and uh, another way of getting things done, which is uh, projects, solutions, rather than uh, top-down structures or ideas. So it's solution-based, it's multi-stakeholder based, and it's a way to involve a lot of young people who have the belief and the energy that the ideas they have can help solving global problems, and the Paris Peace Forum is a sort of incubator, the purpose of which is to help the best of these initiatives to be scaled up at global level, whereas so far they've remained at local or regional level. Now we will be transitioning into a little bit of commentary on Mr. Lamy's interview and thoughts on globalization. But before that, let's define a couple of terms that Mr. Lamy uses for some of our listeners who uh, might need a little bit more background or contextualization. When Mr. Lamy uses the term market capitalism, capitalism is an economic system in which private individuals or businesses own capital goods. The production of these goods and services is based on a supply and demand in a general market known as a market economy. So the combination of the market economy and capitalism in that sense produces market capitalism. When he refers to production systems, it is an economic system of production which involves resource allocation, exchange and distribution of goods and services in a society or a given geographic area. Cost of distance. Cost of distance involves kind of spatial economics. It is critical for the calculation for businesses and individuals. Distance can inhibit businesses from growing because it might be expensive to ship a product, to move a product to different places. Therefore, cost of distance is very important for firms operation, operating on international scales. Uh, yeah, and to define isolationism, it's a policy of remaining apart from the affairs or interests of other groups especially the political affairs of other countries. And that's about it for the terms. Now we will be transitioning into some commentary and discussion on Mr. Lamy's interview. So first of all, one of the main big concepts that Mr. Lamy touched on was the winners and losers of globalization. He believes that some people have embraced globalization while others have also been left aside. With the Western world doing kind of a poor job, as he mentions, in resolving how we've treated those who've been left aside, we're now paying the price in terms of nationalist and populist movements arising. What are your guys' thoughts on those who have been left aside, those who are engaging in populism and in these nationalist movements and how they've arisen in the global context? Uh, hi, this is Roman. Well, I want to discuss uh, mainly like the losers of globalization, specifically with the practice of offshoring that a lot of uh, international businesses have been doing, especially in the past 20 years. Uh, offshoring is essentially the practice of basing some of a company's processes or services overseas so as to take advantage of lower costs. And you're essentially seeing businesses do this to uh, cheapen costs uh, and to basically send off their production and um, uh, manufacturing uh, for unskilled labor jobs, essentially. And as a result of this, you're seeing a lot of the unskilled jobs in 
the Western world, especially in, in, in America, you're seeing a lot of those jobs get lost. And as a result, that a lot of national sentiment uh, has been uh, popping up recently, especially, you know, with the emergence of Donald Trump. You're seeing a lot of people want to kind of uh, kind of close off their borders now because they're afraid of more jobs getting lost due to the increased process of uh, globalization. So of course you you are seeing uh, the losers of all of this due to due to the increased process of globalization and you can you can kind of understand why certain people are thinking negatively about globalization despite the fact that it also could bring some benefit. Yeah, I think it's important to look at the this distinction between winners and losers cuz a lot of times when we think about globalization we think about absolute wealth rising. Um, but we also don't realize that the relative inequality between groups is increasing. One interesting way to think about this is the distinction between somewheres and anywheres. And somewheres um, kind of have their identity rooted in place. And so they, you know, they work in manufacturing jobs, they work in the Midwest, they work in rural com- communities and areas, and a lot of their identity is based on this. And when globalization happens and these firms that they've been working for don't no longer provide them a job, their identity is lost a lot. And I think that a lot of the reasons that people turn to populist sentiments isn't just because of economic reasons, um, because of job loss, but also because of that identity loss that comes with a more interconnected world that benefits anywheres who can just move on and whose identity is more tied to um, capital. It's not fixed to a certain place. Yeah, definitely. This is Julian. Building off what Hannah said, I think it's definitely important to see globalization not only in economic terms, but also culturally and seeing how loss of identity is very much rooted in globalization, how cultures are becoming very homogenous in a lot of senses. People are feeling that their identity is becoming lost in a global transference of information and culture. People feel like a lot of their distinct ways of living are becoming lost to a larger kind of hegemonic ideal of how society should be and should be run globally rather than distinctly within one's own country. I mean, with cultural movements comes also with the movement of people. With a lot of migration into Europe, the migrant crisis brought a lot of popular sentiments out from a lot of people because they saw a lot of foreign cultures or foreign people coming into their countries and perceiving that as a threat to their identity, their economic success, and their kind of society as a whole in terms of its homogeneity, but also how they might be losing their foothold within society or their dominance within certain um, social strata. Yeah, I think that uh, focusing on this homogeneity um, of identity is really, really interesting. Um, I think that what might be interesting to look at too is that... um, a lot of times we're looking at this from the perspective of the people of the losers of globalization. And we look at it through kind of these assumptions where, oh, you know, if the um, demographic is getting more and more diverse and um, people are coming in from a lot of different areas of the world, these people are going to feel scared. But I'm wondering, what do you guys think is the impact of elites portrayal of this on these people's perceptions of globalization like do you think that just because the world is becoming more globalized and just because we're getting more um, different identities in a certain place people are going to want to revolt against it or do you think there's some way that 
elites and the people who are benefiting from it can mitigate the impact on the people who are losing from it to stop them from having this reaction, this adverse reaction to um, globalization. Uh, yeah, this is Roman. I think elites, in a way, um, especially dealing with politicians and whatnot, really like to take advantage of whatever the public opinion is of each country. For example, if uh, if they were seeing a lot of people starting to uh, vote against immigration or vote for more uh, kind of uh, more isolationist policy, uh, then I think a lot of elites would start moving towards that and start you know campaigning for that for policies that are more that are more conservative in a way uh and and of course vice versa i think uh, the same would go if people were more open for immigration if people were, were more open for some sort of liberal policies then i think the same would apply i think elites really are trying to uh to try and uh, kind of ride on a public opinion train you know and that i think is really what's determining uh whether uh they support uh whether they support globalization or whether they don't yeah, I think this is Julian. I think a lot also is contingent on how elites in a way are being perceived with globalization as becoming further, as Hannah mentioned, relatively unequal, uh, unequal compared to those who are perceived as the average working class or middle class. I think that there's a belief that there's a significant departure and how globalization is benefiting the elite, but not really benefiting a lot of the middle class or the working class. There's this perception that um, those are being left behind, which is, I think, what uh, Mr. Lamy is kind of talking about. And I think that in terms of how the elite are capitalizing it in terms of public opinion, as Roman says, you can see a lot of this arising in a lot of the political campaigns, notably you know, in, with Donald Trump or Mary Le Pen or within the Brexit movement. There is this kind of building off of the kind of a pessimism towards establishment, the pessimism towards the elite, that a lot of politicians now are kind of using globalization or kind of trying to counter globalization or use that pessimism towards globalization in order to fuel kind of this sentiment towards taking back what is rightfully ours or taking back kind of the essence of what it means to be a member within a certain society or within the working or middle class. I think that this trying to bridge back a more equalized society is kind of what a lot of political figures are trying to do now or kind of what a lot of their platforms are uh, building off of. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's actually a model in economics uh, right now currently, which is called the uh, elephant trunk model, and essentially shows that the, the poorer middle class, those that are making that are that are making above a, uh, the U.S. dollar of one dollar twenty five, but are still uh, considered uh, to be poor by Western standards, you can see that they're actually uh, their their wealth, their living standards are actually going up. Meanwhile, if you go down towards, uh, it's kind of like the trunk of of the elephant. That's that's the that's the Western middle class, and those are the people that you're seeing that are really beginning to rise up and and, and beginning to kind of voice their voice their concerns, voice their negativities towards globalization. And of course, at the top of the at the top of the trunk, you're seeing like the top, uh, the top five uh, percent, the top one percent who are actually. Uh, benefiting probably the most from all this uh, increased globalization who are 
receiving a large uh, share of the income right now. Yeah, I think that's definitely kind of the the economic analysis of what's going on. I think it's so important to recognize that. Um, I think that's something that also gets lost in the conversation of the people who are losing from globalization a lot is that the movements and the populist movements that these things lead to often turn back to kind of um, sentiments about sentiments based in like racial um, racialized ideas or sentiments based in keeping out the other and that's very dangerous but I think that at the same time as recognizing that that's dangerous we need to recognize that these people these people who are losing from globalization do have real grievances that are going on and I think that personally something that um, is often overlooked is that elites who benefited from globalization and who a lot of liberal elites who really want to get you know racial equality and gender diversity and things like that, in order to do that, they should have realized that they should address, address income inequality to make this happen because in not addressing income inequality, they led to these people who, you know, relatively lost a lot to globalization and who therefore turned to sentiments that derail um, the progress towards uh, equality for different sorts of minority groups. And I think that's kind of an often underlooked connection and conversation um, in in the idea of uh, those who lose from globalization. And just to kind of branch off uh, what people are losing from globalization, of course, one part, uh, one aspect to look at here is not necessarily people, but the environment right now. Um, the question is, of course, Lamy brought this up, is pricing carbon, what what is an agreement on that? Uh, the problem that countries can't really decide uh, how much they should really price carbon uh, per ton, you know? And I'm just wondering for you guys, do you see countries cooperating eventually once they really begin to see all the degradations to the environment? Just what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so for me, Mr. Lamy brings up pricing carbon as his focal point in terms of reconciling global capitalism and the environment as the primary strategy to promote sustainable practice. But I think that there are alternate ways to achieve that. I think that somehow by by bringing together the interests of environmentally sustainable practice and corporate interests is definitely something that should be promoted. Pricing carbon could be a method, but I think as well, developing ways that make sustainable practice desirable as as opposed to some sort of cost being placed on people could also be a way to resolve how we look at the environment and global capitalism. I mean, we're seeing companies such as Tesla come up that are embracing this environmental change in kind of a paradigm shift towards using electric vehicles, um, electric cars, embracing that and becoming very successful on their own as a you know entity participating in global capitalism i think that perhaps finding ways to promote environmental ideals within the realm of capitalism could also be a way of going about it, resolving kind of that um, seemingly paradoxical interchange between the natural world and something that seems very rigid and very anti-environmental in terms of capitalism to um, kind of resolve those two issues. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, uh, yeah, if you just focus on, you know, 
what can individuals do, you leave out what can corporations do, which are obviously a big um, um, importance in understanding the global environmental problem. I think that there's definitely a paradox to this, though, because, like, for instance, companies like Tesla, once you get an environmental company or once you place and yeah, once you place an environmental company in the marketplace, it's going to try to make as much capital as possible. And then cars like Tesla are only available to people with a lot of money. And this is the same thing that you see, you know, with trends like veganism or things like that. It's really only accessible to a certain demographic of people. And I think that's really tricky um, because, you know, environmentalism is kind of inherently opposed to capitalism, which is about, you know, using our land and making as many resources um, as possible from that land. And it makes it very hard for people who maybe don't have access to information or access to as many resources to have a big environmental impact. Yeah, so just going off from, uh, to transition from corporates, uh, co- from corporations to individuals, I'm just wondering what do you guys think, uh, what, what is the role of individuals when it comes to this, especially the youth, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing people like Greta Thunberg make a, make a huge difference in all this, really voicing their opinion, uh, voicing her opinion about uh, the whole environmental issue and really making it a mainstream topic, you know, uh, what, what's your guys' thoughts, like what, what, how important is the youth when it comes to all of this? Well, I think obviously the youth is really important because um, they're kind of the, the first generation to grow up really knowing that the climate is going to be a big factor in their life. And I think that more than ever before, people are recognizing youth as meaningful political actors. And I think that that's meaningful, not just for youth, but also to show that people who we might not have thought of before as meaningful political actors really are. And I think that people like Greta Thunberg are so important. Um, and I think that a, another group that we've ignored is Indigenous people who have been talking about this forever, <laughs> who've been talking about the impact that our I, our cap, like global capitalist ways have on the environment for so long, and we have ignored them. And I think it's so important to give voice to people who have not been heard um, as a result of European colonization and listen to what they have to say because I think they have a lot to say about how we can sustain our world in the future. Yeah, definitely. And for me, I think that globalization seems like such a transnational huge force that doesn't really seem relevant in a lot of our lives. But, you know, it's really, it is. I mean, I think that being educated and kind of learning more about these types of concepts is one step. And also, I think that reaching out to your local lawmakers, to politicians that are in your communities, to learn more about Canada or wherever community you're from, their roles or their implications in a lot of trade deals, a lot of um, international problems or various crises, I think it's important to be an engaged citizen, to learn more through the news, to speak to politicians to speak to lawmakers and various uh, constituent assemblies to find out more and to voice your opinion, as Hannah said, to give a voice to those who don't have one. I think that that whole idea of, as we discussed in the first question, those who've been left aside, I think that it's important that though I though it is they a lot of some of these people have a lot of controversial opinions, I think that without you know, hearing some of these opinions, it would not, you would not be able to know about a lot of the pessimism or a lot of the people who have been negatively impacted by globalization. A lot of us have been, or a lot of people are 
in a certain position to get a lot of the benefits of globalization, but there are definitely those who haven't. And I think that by making sure you're informed and to hear and to listen, to give the time for these types of people to speak and to take the time in the educational and cooperative format to hear these people, I think it's really important for collaboration and community engagement in order to build relationships and to create better solutions that can help a larger group of people. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that statement. I think it's I think it's super important to really for the youth right now especially to get the voices that haven't been heard in the past 100 years in the past 200 years uh to be to be finally heard. You know, uh I think the best exemplification of all of this happened uh last week when students and a lot of other young people uh protested against the pipeline that was planning to be built in the Wet'suwet'en lands. Um you know, they they made a huge impact by uh, closing off uh, major intersections such as the one, uh, the intersection in University Boulevard and Westbrook Mall, as well as uh, West 49th and Canby, you know, uh, and I think that m- allowed uh, the voices of the indigenous people to be heard by by making such an impact like this. Uh, I think, you know, for young people right now, it's super important to just go out there and to demonstrate, to do whatever they can to really t- uh, to raise uh, such important issues like this, you know, uh, because before before the protest, for example, for me, at least, I didn't really know much about the whole pipeline issue. Like I wasn't that well informed of it. But after after the actual demonstrations, I actually uh, I looked in the news. I I I was curious as to what <laughs> what exactly they were protesting against. And as a result of that, I, I was able to gain the proper information about all of this. And I think and I think the same can really apply for many other people out there. All right, so that pretty much wraps up our commentary on Mr. Lamy's interview and on globalization. Is it a small world after all? This is Global Get Down, and this has been Julian. This has been Roman. And this has been Hannah.